our reading today comes from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness, worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the, the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works would you pray with me lord god we thank you we thank you that you have sent your son we thank you that he has made a people for himself we thank you that we get to gather together to sit before your word we ask that it by the power of your holy spirit would conform us into the image of Jesus. Lord, that we would be eager to do good works. We would be eager to, to put off godlessness and, and worldly ways so that your fame, that your son, renown would be magnified throughout the earth. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ Community Church. I pray that you all had a sweet time with family and friends and loved ones as we remembered the coming of our Lord Jesus yesterday. And as we wrapped up Advent this past week and with us starting a new series in the coming year, that means that today's sermon is a standalone sermon. And so I'm excited for that. This is a passage that I found myself meditating on for the past few months. So if you have a Bible or a device, please open up to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we will be. For almost five years, Laura and I lived in Louisville, Kentucky while I was going to seminary. And during our time there, you quickly come to realize that there is something exciting, something enticing about being in a seminary community. But at the same time, you also realize that the effects of sin And the battle of spiritual warfare, like Paul talks about in Ephesians, is just as prevalent there, if not even more so. And but one story from my time there has always remained with me. It was of a husband and a wife who had moved to Louisville a little bit before us to attend seminary, both of them signing up for classes. He was going to pursue his MDiv for the pastorate. She was doing a different master's to be able to uh, benefit the church where they hoped to serve together uh, in the coming years. Until about a year in, when for reasons unknown to many of us, he renounced his faith. He denounced it completely. He withdrew from seminary, and he went to work at a local hospital, and he told her that he would no longer be going to church since he no longer believed, and he encouraged her to do the same. On top of all this, she found out she was pregnant right after. So she had a choice. Do I remain faithful to God and trust him to work in the midst of a difficult situation to save my husband, or do I leave and follow him? Do I remain faithful to God and raise my child in the fear of the Lord, or do I give in and follow my husband because it'll be easier? How do I remain faithful to God? Maybe the most important question, how do I remain faithful knowing that my husband and I are now no longer united in the most important thing for a marriage? Well, over the next few years, one of the more encouraging things to us and really many other families on campus was seeing her to continue to go to classes, to continue to be involved at church, and to continue to bring their son with her. 
She remained faithful to God, and she continued to live out 1 Peter 3 and honor her unbelieving husband. You see, she had been presented with a major temptation to renounce her faith, and during that time, she had pressed in all the more to her relationship with God and her relationship with God's people. And this, friends, I tell you this story because this is a smaller yet similar picture of what we see happening in the book of Hebrews. When pressure and persecutions mount, some renounce their faith and some remain faithful. So since we're jumping into chapter three, allow me to explain what has happened in chapters one and two of Hebrews. Feel free to look there. The book of Hebrews is written to encourage Jewish Christians who have left Judaism not to return to it, to not go back to their old way of life, to not return to that which is inferior. It is written both for their encouragement and as a warning to what happens if they do renounce Christ. So chapter one opens with this glorious statement about Jesus that tells us that in the past, God spoke through the prophets in order to communicate. But now he has spoken finally and definitively and authoritatively through his son, Jesus Christ. The revelation of God's son is God's final revelation to us. We no longer need further revelation. And then the author continues and he argues how Jesus is greater than and more superior than the angelic beings. That as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he's not a created being like an angel, but he is one with God himself. And then in chapter two, he says not only is he God, but he's also man. He's truly man as well. And in Jesus Christ, these two are perfectly held together. That as the son of God who took on human flesh, who shared in flesh and blood like you and I, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, the author can now conclude at the end of chapter two that Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. The author writes that he had to in order to be merciful, faithful, and able to help. Jesus Christ is able to help you exactly where you find yourself this morning because he experienced all of the sufferings of humanity, all of the temptations that you and I give into, all of the difficulties of life that we experience under this sun. He experienced them all, and yet he did not sin. He remained faithful And therefore, he is able to atone for your sin. He's able to provide for us and to be the sacrifice that we have to have. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. And so now as we turn to chapter 3, I want us to recognize and see that this book, and in particular this section, is written to us. Written to us so that we might consider Jesus Christ this morning and some particularly amazing truths about him. So that's the title of this morning's sermon, Consider Jesus. And if you're taking notes, you can follow along with the outline provided in the bulletin. Therefore, let's look at Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read our passage, verses 1 to 6. The author writes, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. 
Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the perfect life and to atone for our sins on the cross. And we praise you that he did not stay dead, but that he rose again and in so doing has secured salvation for his people. We praise you for that reality this morning. And Father, I recognize that the day after Christmas, our thoughts, our minds, our affections, our hearts can be scattered and and everywhere. There are so many things that are vying for our attention and seeking to distract us. So I pray that that for these next few minutes, for these next few minutes, you would help us to consider your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. My hope this morning is that for today and for the coming year, We at Christ Community Church who have experienced the joy and the love and the grace of having our hearts regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we now confess Jesus as Lord, we might have our affections stirred to consider Jesus more intentionally, more joyfully, and more faithfully. So in order to do that, I have four things for us to consider from our passage this morning. And the first is this, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The first verse, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The main point of this passage is given in the first verse right here of chapter three. Therefore, the author writes, in light of everything I've said to you so far, in light of everything I've expounded to you so far, in light of all of that, Consider Jesus Christ. The audience is clearly the church. He says, holy brothers and sisters who share a heavenly calling. And what is this calling? That's the effectual calling of God's saved and set apart people. The heavenly calling of Christ's bride, the church. And what should these people do? What should we do? Consider Jesus Christ. You see, to consider means to give intentional thought to, to think upon to fix your thoughts upon. There is an intentionality behind this consideration. I have learned in almost 10 years of marriage to consider my wife. (laughs) When we go on a date, I have learned the astounding truth that she likes to be the recipient of my focus and my attention. So I have learned not to sit where there's a TV in view. My focus and attention goes out the window when there is a sports game clearly visible over her shoulder. I like to think I have self-control, self-discipline until that moment, and I do not. And according to her, I can go watch the game with my bros, her language, not mine, at a different time. But during that moment, my attention needs to be focused on her, my thoughts, my consideration. And so what does the author of Hebrews want us to consider What does he want when he tells us to consider Christ? He wants for us to give intentional thought to, to think upon, to fix our thoughts upon that whom our faith is grounded in. To consider means to observe him, to observe the person of Christ, his character, his compassion, the fact that he is gentle and lowly and able to save to the uttermost. 
Consider the work of Christ and all that he accomplished for you on Calvary. Consider the salvation he has secured for you. Do these things occupy your mind much? Do you consider or give intentional thought to Jesus Christ? Or much like I have to guard against when coming home from a long day and my kids want to play and they get my second or even third hand attention, I don't focus on them like I should. Is that your relationship with Jesus this morning? Does he get your leftovers? Something you microwave up with a quick prayer when you need some help from him? Has he been put in the back seat or worse, the trunk while you get to drive wherever you want in life? You see, in a day and age where everything is vying for our attention like never before, it will take intentional effort from God's people to consider Christ. This is the verb of the verse. This is the command of the passage. This is what you are to do. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. Consider Jesus. Consider him. I understand that life is busy There are stresses in your marriage and with your kids. You're frustrated with things at work. You possibly had to see family members you don't like yesterday. And all of those are just relational things. We have media confronting us nonstop. We struggle to put down our phone for a few minutes. Social media always needs to be checked or else we feel like we are missing out. I understand all of that. But it's still not an excuse. You are called to consider him. And I think every single one of us knows that we can do this more. It is, as Paul writes in Philippians 4, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Consider these things. What could be more true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or commendable than Jesus Christ, our risen Savior? Have you considered him lately? Or has your faith just devolved into going through the motions? Because when you're going through the motions, then you're not intentionally running the race that is set before you. To use a swimming metaphor in the Christian life, you're either intentionally swimming in the right direction or you're drifting out to sea. There's no such thing as just floating in Christianity. You never stay where you are. You see, God made our hearts and our minds for thinking and observing and dwelling and focusing. And when that doesn't happen much on the things of God, then like the converted Jews that the author of Hebrews is writing to, we can be tempted to go back to how things were. Tempted like Israel in the Old Testament to just giving lip service to God at times, all the while not realizing that our hearts are going after idols. What do you find yourself considering most of these days? How about over the past year? The command to consider Jesus implies giving him intentional thought throughout your days. I realize that life is busy, but here in Hebrews, we have to see that a main part of the action that we're called to do to prevent falling away is to consider him. So may we be a people who desire to consider the things of God and consider Jesus Christ more and more throughout our lives. Secondly, consider his faithfulness. Consider his faithfulness. Consider Jesus, he writes, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all of God's household. All of us know the reality that trust is earned, not given. 
Some of you have heard this saying as well, trust takes years to build, seconds to break, and forever to rebuild. For you to trust someone involves them acting in such a way that you admire or respect or desire to imitate. They are trustworthy. They are worthy of you putting their trust in them. And we've seen in this passage the call to consider Jesus and how everything else is flowing from that. And now we see the first grounding as to why you should consider Jesus. Because he was faithful. Faithful to the one who appointed him. You can trust him because of his faithfulness. His track record is spotless. And who was it that appointed him? God the Father. And what was he appointed to do? What was his given mission? What was he entrusted to do? To come and rescue and redeem a wayward people. To come and rescue and redeem you and I. You see, the text says that he was faithful as the apostle and high priest of our confession. So let's consider each of those. First, he was faithful as an apostle. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. This is not to be understood as saying he's like one of the 12 apostles and being a disciple of God. That's not the point. It's actually getting to the root of what apostolos means. It just means to be sent, to be a messenger. Jesus Christ was sent out of love from the Father to obtain redemption and salvation for God's people. The Gospel of John, more than any other book, is filled with the language of Jesus being sent by God. John chapter 3. For the one whom God sent speaks God's word since he gives the spirit without measure. John chapter five, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. John chapter eight, and if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge but I and the father who sent me. And there are tons more throughout the New Testament. Jesus was very clear in his earthly ministry that he was sent by the Father to preach the gospel, to work miracles, and to do the will of God. And in his office of, as apostle, he was faithful to the one who appointed him. He was faithful to the mission that he was sent to do. He was faithful as an apostle. But second, he was also faithful as a high priest. The writer of Hebrews calls him the high priest of our confession, and this is the specific office that is used the most throughout, for Jesus throughout the book of Hebrews. For those of you who don't know, the high priest was an office held in the Old Testament by a Levite who would get to enter into the Holy of Holies. That's really where the manifest presence of God was. That he would get to enter in once a year to sacrifice for the people of Israel. Once a year to make a sacrifice for them. And this sacrifice, according to the law, had to be perfect without blemish. Any sacrifice that an Israelite brought throughout the year had to be perfect. It couldn't be an offering that was cheap or worthless to God. They had to bring something really valuable, something perfect, something that he would otherwise treasure for himself. And this is definitely true for the sacrifice that the high priest makes once a year. So how was Jesus faithful as a high priest? Because in God's beautiful wisdom, He sent Jesus Christ as an intercessor, like the priest of old, who would go between God and his people. He comes as that person, as the high priest. He comes as our high priest in complete perfection, in his love, in his mercy, his sinlessness, his grace. He comes in all of his perfection, and instead of putting up something else on the altar or someone else on the altar, he comes and he lays himself upon it. The lion is now the lamb. 
He lays down his life willingly for his people. Jesus is our high priest forever because of what took place on the cross. It is, as it says later in this book, Hebrews chapter 9, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. This is why, friends, we don't still sacrifice today. It's why whenever you came in through those doors, you weren't required to bring a sacrifice to come and worship. The magnitude of Christ's death on the cross, the wrath that he endured, the sufferings that he was afflicted with, all of it that took place on Calvary was the final sacrifice to be made before God the Father. There will never be another sacrifice made to God. It is, as it says in Hebrews 10, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand. He's in the presence of God to show that the sacrifice was accepted. He's now seated because his work is done. It is finished. His high priestly work was fulfilled. He was faithful to accomplish it. So what does that mean for us, friends? What does it mean that he is faithful as a high priest? How does that affect you today? Well, it means that for those of us in Christ, there is now no more condemnation. It means that your sins have been washed by the blood of Christ. It means that you can rest from trying to please God with your good works or trying to earn salvation with your good works or trying to feel better about yourself with your good works because Jesus Christ, through his glorious atoning work, died for you. And as we have seen, the sacrifice was pleasing and accepted. So there's nothing that you can add to your salvation It means, brothers and sisters, that when we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That we can sing it truthfully and joyfully and faithfully and lovingly and gratefully because we know in our hearts and our souls that he really did pay it all. He was faithful to the one who sent him. Consider his faithfulness this morning. Has that been applied to you personally? Do you know him? Thirdly, consider his superiority. Look at verse three. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony or as a witness to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the focal points of Hebrews is to not turn back, to not denounce Christ, to not capitulate to current pressure. And for former Jews who had come to embrace Christ, this was a major temptation in the face of open hostility from other Jews. This hostility would involve them denouncing Jesus. Many of the Jews were saying that he was just a good teacher, but not the Messiah, Or they highlight his crucifixion on the cross and say there's no way he's the Messiah in light of that happening. Or maybe there might be an acknowledgement that Jesus was a prophet, but in Jewish thinking, he's still nowhere near Moses, God's chosen servant to lead their ancestors out of Egypt. You see, it is wired in us to recognize that which is superior. We understand that a car travels more efficiently than a horse and buggy. We understand that a plane beats a car. We understand that a cell phone beats a rotary phone. Yes, I have used a rotary phone. We understand the superiority of pumpkin pie over any other pie. We understand the superiority of the Dallas Cowboys over any other team. 
We understand the superiority of this beard that you're looking at compared to the others, all right? There are things that are easy to recognize as superior. And so when the Jews, they offer up a consideration, and the author of Hebrews is going to answer that. When they put up Moses as superior, well, the writer has something to say about that. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book highlight Christ's supreme glory, and now in verse 3 of chapter 3, the writer states point blank, he's worthy of more glory than Moses, How is this? Because Moses was definitely worthy of some glory. He was given honor by God and by men. He was called to deliver God's people out of Egypt. He confronted earth's mightiest ruler at the time in Pharaoh, and he was used by God for miracle after miracle to deliver Israel. He was God's spokesperson for his people. God gave the law to Moses. He inscribed the Ten Commandments on stone and gave them to those, gave them to those as well. He even let his glory pass before Moses. So no other human is close to Moses in terms of glory as Jewish, Jewish thinking goes. And so the writer says, no. In fact, Jesus is worthy of more glory, for he is superior in every way. And then he uses, if you look at the passage, he uses this metaphor of building a house, and he says, does not the person who designed the house, who laid the foundation, who constructed it and completed it, does he not have more glory than the house itself? Every house is built by someone, he says, but God is the one who built everything. What's happening here is a little complex, but it is beautiful in what the author is doing. The writer is making an argument for the superiority of Jesus, both from his human nature and his God nature. In his human nature, he was faithful, as we have seen. He was faithful to the mission and faithful as a high priest to atone for God's people. But now he turns to Christ's deity, and he says, and he was faithful because as the son of God, he has built the house of the people of God. He's the builder of the house. He's the creator of all. So yes, Moses was faithful, and yes, he deserves glory, but consider the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ, who isn't just a part of the house of God like Moses, but actually the Son of God who leads and receives the worship of the people of God. He isn't a part of the house like Moses. He built the house himself. It is, as it says in the hymn of Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So like the examples earlier, his superiority is clear. Moses provided physical deliverance. Christ has provided eternal deliverance. Moses is a part of the house. Christ is Lord of the house. Christ did more miracles. He completed a greater work, and he is truly God himself. Both were faithful. Both received glory. But the writer of Hebrews is spelling out that one is clearly superior. Now, I don't think I have many former Jews in here listening to me this morning who are tempted to revert back to Judaism. So you might be sitting there agreeing with me saying, yes, I see all of that, Ryan. I agree Christ is greater than Moses. What does this have to do with me? I'm so glad you asked. Because as I mentioned earlier, the temptation to revert back to an old way of life is always present. The temptation to be enticed with former sin is always around the corner. And unless we see Christ as superior, we will be prone to giving in. That's the real issue at stake here. That's the point of Hebrews and them denouncing the faith. It's a battle for the heart. We worship what we love. 
The writer of Hebrews wants to point out the superiority of Christ so that, in order that, their hearts would be drawn to worship him and they wouldn't denounce him. We must see his superiority over all things, vying for our worship, enticing us to sin, or we too could be tempted to renounce him. Tempted to look at something else for satisfaction. Tempted to fall back into the sins that we once left. Friends, practically speaking, do you see the superiority of Christ in your life? Do you really see it? Do you see it over a love for more money in your life or a desire to get that promotion at work? Do you see Christ as greater than your desire for recognition or would you sacrifice him for those things? Do you see his superiority over your desire to be known and loved by another? Do you see him as greater than any earthly relationship or would you sacrifice him for the perfect one? Do you see his superiority over your hope for your life, over your dreams and your goals, or is there something out there that your heart deems greater? You feel that if you had that one thing, you possessed that one thing, you knew that one person, or you were loved by that one person, then maybe, just maybe, that happiness would be better than what Christ offers. When your heart is tempted by those things, you must consider the superiority of Christ. He is greater than all other things that could ever seek to promise us rest or money or love or anything. Consider his superiority this morning, for it will guard you from having a divided heart. Which brings us to our last point. Consider your confidence and hope. Verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. The writer here closes out his thoughts with a conditional if. We are that household if we hold on to our confidence and hope. Now, in my understanding of the warning passages in Hebrews, I don't think that apostasy or falling away is the point here. Rather, it's the positive. We show ourselves to be of the household by holding fast to our confidence and hope. This verse is descriptive of what a faithful believer looks like to the end. His point is pastoral, and this was true for the Jewish audience as well. They that have a true faith, a true hope, a true confidence will demonstrate those things to the end and therefore show themselves to be of the household of God. And so he says that we are to hold on to two things, our confidence and our hope. Now, our confidence in light of the scope of the entirety of Hebrews is speaking of the confidence we have in Christ as our high priest, that we now have access to God the Father because of Jesus Christ's atoning and sacrificial work. We have a blood-bought confidence. It is, as it says in Hebrews 4, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Later in the book, in chapter 10, he says, So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Don't throw away your confidence, he tells them. But likewise, he says, cling to the hope in which you boast. Here he's actually referring to the content of our hope rather than the act of hoping itself. 
the content of our hope. That's Jesus Christ. That's the reality that we have been expounding upon this morning, that through his death and burial, his resurrection and ascension, he has secured a living hope for us. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, hold on to your confidence. Hold on to your hope, for that's what God's household does. You show yourself to be a part of that house when you do those things. So this morning, I've asked us to consider Jesus to consider his faithfulness and to consider his superiority. But for this last point, my hope is that you would consider yourself, particularly your hope and confidence. In keeping with Paul's command and to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians, we should consider our confidence and hope. Where are they this morning? Does considering Jesus this morning bring you any joy or any wonder or any praise of him? Sometimes it's hard to stop considering ourselves and our own circumstances for a moment and consider him, but that's exactly what we need to do. Or consider your life. There's no better time to do that than at the end of the year, right? So here we all are. New Year's is right around the corner. Consider your life. Consider how often you consider Christ. Do you behold the king in his glory? And recognize that he calls you to submit everything in your life, every part of your life to his lordship. It's sometimes hard for us to imagine because we don't live in a monarchy, but when a king is on the throne, that means that he is in complete control. He's the one in charge. Those who are a part of his kingdom are to do his bidding, are to follow his decrees. So is he setting the trajectory of your life or are you? We just celebrated yesterday that the king has come, but what does that reality look like for you? Does your life evidence it? Are you actively living for him, actively serving him? Our call to consider Christ this morning confronts every single one of us exactly where we are. Have we considered him? And what does that look like for us? How can we grow to consider him more? I pray, as I said earlier in the message, that we would consider Jesus today and in the coming year more intentionally, more joyfully, and more faithfully. So would you pray with me? Father, we praise you as the sovereign Lord of the universe, the sovereign king who invites us to be a part of his kingdom. And Father, we recognize that we are a people prone to wander. We feel that, Lord, prone to leave the God that we love. And so I pray that as we examine ourselves and as we think on this past year, that you would help us to recognize where we have considered Jesus faithfully and where we have failed to do so. God, this passage is written to believers, written to those of us in who have trusted in Christ so that we might consider Jesus Christ more faithfully. Would you help us to do that? And Father, for the person in here who is an unbeliever, who um, wants nothing to do with the things of God, and they're being asked to consider Jesus, I pray that you would do a work by the power of your Holy Spirit and regenerate their heart. Because they can consider him intellectually, but until their heart is changed and regenerated, they cannot know you, God. So I pray that you would do a work by the power of your Holy Spirit right now, that they might believe. Father, help us to consider you more faithfully in the coming year. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.